0: Welcome to the Why on Earth community podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry. And today we're visiting with Georgia Kelly, the executive director of the Praxis Peace Institute. Hi, Georgia, how you doing?
1: Great. How are you today, Aaron?
0: Well, I'm doing really well, and I am so excited for this conversation in particular. Uh, it feels uh, as if I've been anticipating this for 20, 25 years, which might become clear in the course of our conversation why. Um, but essentially, the, the reason is you're an expert on the Mondragon cooperative system and, and amazing community and corporate structure over in the Basque region of Spain, which is going to form much of the topic of our conversation today.
1: Right. So I hate, excited. I, I hate hesitate to use the word expert. I, I feel like I know a fair amount because I've been there many times and spent a lot of time there, but I hesitate to use that word.
0: No problem whatsoever. I'll, I'll use it for you. <laughs> <laughs> Georgia Kelly is the founder and executive director of Praxis Peace Institute. She has produced and directed several multi-day conferences in Europe and the United States and continues to create educational programs for Praxis. In addition to leading seminars and tours abroad in places like Italy, Cuba, Croatia, and Spain, She developed a week-long seminar and tour at the Mondragon Cooperatives in Spain, which has become a signature program at Praxis. As a dedicated advocate for cooperatives, she compiled the Mondragon Report, an account of how the Praxis and Mondragon Seminar has impacted the cooperative movement in the United States. Georgia is also an active citizen and has chaired several issue-based political organizations and educational forums. She served as a delegate to the Democratic National Convention in 1992. That's Governor Jerry Brown in uh, California. And uh, Georgia also holds a certificate in conflict resolution from Sonoma State University and teaches conflict resolution workshops and mediation. In 2013, she edited and co-authored Uncivil Liberties, Deconstructing Libertarianism, a critique of libertarian ideas and laissez-faire capitalism written from the perspective of three academics and three activists. Her previous career was as a musician, harpist, composer, and recording artist. And Georgia, it's, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show, and I believe that what we're going to be talking about today, particularly the Mondragon Cooperatives, Uh, provides such a tremendously important framework for many of us engaged in this regenerative stewardship sustainability movement. And I find in many of my conversations, especially here in the United States, that a handful of folks here and there are aware of the Mondragon cooperatives, but a whole lot of folks already engaged in really important work aren't yet uh, aware of the Mondragon cooperatives. And I think we've got a real opportunity here to help educate folks generally, and especially with our Buy on Earth, community audience. And so to kick things off, let me just jump right in and ask you, uh, what are the Mondragon Cooperatives? Tell us, uh, paint a picture for us what we're talking about.
1: Well, this is an extraordinary complex of worker owned businesses in the Basque region of Spain. They were founded in 1956 with one small worker owned business with five people, five worker owners who had graduated from this polytechnic school that had uh, been founded by a Catholic priest in Mondragon. His name was uh, Father Jose Maria Arismendi Arieta. He had the vision uh, and really an extraordinary vision, but he was also a very practical man. And he realized coming to the Basque region with a very high unemployment rate in the late forties, early fifties, that what they needed was to educate the people there so they could qualify for the industrial jobs that were available. And that's why he started the school. And out of that school, um, five of the students created Fagor, which is, it was called Olgor then, but it's changed its name to Fagor. And the industrial appliance Fagor still exists today. And that was the beginning with five people. Today, it's almost 100. or maybe it's a little over 100 worker-owned businesses and probably between 85 and 90,000 worker owners. It fluctuates, but that's approximately what it is. So it became huge in this amount of time. And also what it fostered in the region is in the 40s and 50s, 1940s and 50s, the Basque region was the poorest area of Spain. Today, it's the wealthiest area of Spain. So that has really come about through the plethora of worker owned cooperatives. Mondragon is the biggest consortium of cooperatives, but there are also a, probably an additional 1000 cooperatives in the Basque region. So it's a huge movement in the entire culture. That's kind of that
0: extraordinary. That is extraordinary. And, um, you know, I, I, I guess I'll give it away. I, I did a bit of a deep dive studying Mondragon when I was in graduate school, looking at sustainable economic models of some couple decades ago. And, and when I've shared with folks what I learned about Mondragon, one of the ways I like to orient folks to understand where this is geographically and culturally um, is, is by mentioning, it's my understanding at least, that uh, this pretty well-known painting by Picasso called Guernica Mm-hmm. Uh, which is sort of monochromatic kind of black, white, and gray with all these disfigured uh, folks in the painting is his depiction of a, a, a bombing that occurred uh, just prior to World War II, as I understand it, when the dictator F- Franco gave Hitler permission basically to test the Air Force, the Luftwaffe of the German Nazi war machine. And of, of course, these people in this region of the Pyrenees tucked right there against the Bay of Biscay uh, have undergone some different uh, uh, injustices and in, in brutality through history as a specific ethnic group in that region, as I understand it. Is that right? Can you tell us a bit yes. about that?
1: Uh, you history? know, the Franco regime was very oppressive for the Basque people generally. And they, I think, this is the reason why Mond- the Mondragon cooperatives have always kept somewhat of a low profile. And part of it is they had to during the Franco regime. And Arismendi Arieta, the priest, was actually arrested at one point. Um, but because it's a Catholic country, and even the the, um, the right wing people were Catholic, so they couldn't really hold a priest indefinitely, which they didn't. But it was a lesson, you know, to to keep. A low profile. And it also meant during Franco's years that they could not teach their own Basque language, nor use it in the schools. So uh, there was quite an oppressive foot, I would say, on the neck of the Basque people during that time. And uh, fortunately, when he passed on, things changed. And now a whole generation has learned the Basque language. Most people there speak it, but there is one generation that didn't learn it it was the one coming of age in during Franco's regime so they all speak Spanish a lot of them speak English and most of them speak Basque at this point
0: tell us a bit about the the region in terms of you know how it looks what's the food like what's the topography what's the landscape and culture like
1: it's well it's fascinating you know I've been there 11 times now and sat through 11 of our seminars that we have um, at the in Mondragon and what I've learned you know from the first time I went to even now this, the same thing happens get off the airplane and you're taking a ride into Mondragon from Bilbao the roads are just perfectly maintained there are no potholes they're not noisy some of our roads here are noisy and they're not whatever they pave them with they seem to be well maintained um, they're quiet and the whole region looks it is very well-maintained, cared for, appreciated. You don't see messes anywhere. And, and one of the things that everybody notes when they go on our seminar is you don't see poverty. You don't see slums. You don't see people uh, living in the streets. There, there is none of that. And they have pretty much eliminated the low end of the economics spectrum. Uh, poverty is pretty much erased in the Basque region. And it's incredible to experience a society that has learned the concept of enough so that you also don't have this small group of people who own and run everything and make the most money. Uh, I would say primarily the Basque region to me looks like gradations of middle class. And there's you know, an upper middle class, obviously, and there's probably that there are people who are quite wealthy who live there, especially around San Sebastian but um but you don't see displays of great wealth you don't see gated communities and um people live well everybody lives well that's that's part of the joy of going there is that you feel like you're in a very caring society in that region
0: Mm, how delightful and what an example for so many of the rest of us in the world and with the Mondragon cooperatives in particular, this is not just an, an accident of culture. This is a a very intentional approach to community and business and how we conduct ourselves economically in our ecosystems of human relations and otherwise. And I, I was struck to learn about the 10 principles mm-hmm. of the Mondragon cooperatives. And I was hoping we could run through those for our audience and chat a bit about them. And I'm happy to rattle them off real quick since I have a list here, Georgia, unless you'd like to, if you've got it off the top of your head.
1: Uh, I do. I have the the logo right in front of me with all the different ones. And as you see from you're looking at it, too, is the center of this uh, logo here is education. So from education springs all the rest. And there has to be an understanding of what cooperatives are about, of why they're important. Um, so that's kind of the beginning, and it's certainly where Father arismendi Arrieta began. It was with the polytechnic school, with an education, with discussions, and, uh, and that helped form the base of what would eventually be the cooperatives. And Um, I don't know that we need to go through all of them, but I'm going to mention ones that I think are really particularly important for people to know about. You see wage solidarity on that wheel. And that means that the the lowest income um, of a worker owner is only the the CEO of that company is probably only making six times what he is making or she. So there's this ratio one to six uh, for salaries, which is extraordinary. It means you don't have CEOs making 300 times what the lowest paid worker is making. Um, yeah. This is wage solidarity. So you, this is also why you don't have this great big, um, or not big, but big in terms of earning. You don't have people with lots of money and then another group that's just barely making it, working for the same company. This never happens in, in a modern company. And, uh, and that's wage solidarity. Um intercooperation is another really important one. Um, but I, I'm gonna talk about open admission too, because I think this is interesting and it's a quality that Americans sometimes misread. And I think the reason to think, well, anyone can become a member of Monitor. Well, the way it works is if you apply for a job or have an idea for um, a job, you can apply, but uh, there's also an 18 month I guess, an assessment period. Do you fit from your point of view? Do you fit from their point of view? So before you actually can become a worker owner, there is this time of reflection and seeing if it's a good fit. So open admission mean, yes, they're open for other people besides Basque people to apply for jobs. But it also means there are boundaries, there are standards that have to be uh, met. So it's not a free for all. And I think the other way I would look at that is because it's one worker, one share, one vote, no one can amass shares in a company. It's one worker owner, one share. And if they leave, they can cash out their share, but they can't sell it. So that means that they are not available to be taken over by another corporation or a large business in Spain or even internationally. So that has protected the cooperatives. Um, It's one of the smartest things I think at the beginning that the vision was to see that in order to maintain that integrity of the cooperatives, they need to not be available for takeover. So it's important, I think, to understand what open admission means to them. It's a little bit different than sometimes Americans take it to mean, uh, which is one of the reasons why I it was important to talk about it. Um, The one that fascinates me, and from the first time I saw this wheel, I was so motivated by it, is the one on the outer part of the wheel, social transformation. And they are focused on transforming the culture. Cooperatives do transform a culture. And last year and this year when we have our seminar in September, we will go again to a center in Bilbao where their focus is, it's an NGO, non-governmental organization, and their focus is how to manifest social transformation in a community. So they work in different areas of Spain, in um, third world countries. They work in a lot of different countries in this uh, idea of how you transform a culture. I won't go into it all now, but we do go into it with the NGO that does this work when we're in uh, Spain. And it's fascinating to me because my question has always been if society is going to change, it has to change culturally, there has to be an understanding at a very deep level of um, how things really change permanently, not just a revolution where it kind of goes around and comes around, but something that evolves outside of the norm that you know, people have gotten used to. So. Social transformation to me has been one of the key things of understanding how uh, these cooperatives function and how, what their role in the society has become. That's
0: so exciting. I, I wanted to connect a couple of dots for our audience, Georgia. First of all, with respect to the, the, the wage solidarity, um, which I sometimes will refer to as ag- executive pay differential caps. Right. And and just to reiterate, here in the United States, it's very typical for a large corporation to have a CEO uh, paid several hundred Mm -hmm. times as much money each month or each year as a a full time uh, employee within that corporation. And Mondragon has established such a beautiful example here. And I know of Uh, some other companies and organizations that have kind of followed this lead and been inspired by this, including Dr. Bronner's, the soap and and now chocolate company. And we've interviewed a handful of their leaders in several episodes, including one with a CEO, David Bronner, chief engagement officer. And in that we talked about their uh, wage uh, differential cap, which is I think one to five, it might be one to six, but I recall one to five off the top of my head. And of course, Want to mention we did epics episode 36 with nicole vitello from the equal exchange cooperative doing wonderful coffees and teas and chocolates things coming from many different regions of the world in a cooperative model and uh, i mean this is it's georgia such an inspiring story and i'm thrilled um, that coming up is another opportunity for some of us to join you uh, for this week-long experience immersive experience and hopefully um, I'll personally be there, and, and hopefully some of the other uh, friends and colleagues from our Wild on Earth community network will be able to join, in, and that's coming in, in September. Could you tell yes, us a bit? Yes,
1: that will and- be September 10th to 16th, so we meet on a Sunday at the airport in Bilbao, and we have our transfer bus that takes us to Mondragon for the week, and we have lectures every day. They have a beautiful uh, educational center in the hills just above Mondragon. It's on mm. many, many acres of land. It's a beautiful place. It's a renovated 14th century villa that's been renovated for uh, classes basically. And it's just gorgeous. And they also have a dining hall where we have our lunches every day. And, and then we go on excursions. We visit um, some of the cooperatives the worker-owned businesses. We usually go to the Culinary Arts Center, which is part of the Mondragon University system. And they have renowned chefs from all over the world who teach there. And hopefully this year will be able to have lunch there. That's possibility prepared by the students. Um, but we usually go there and see the, um, it's an incredible building. And we have excursions to Bilbao, to the Guggenheim Museum, which was partially built by a Mondragon construction cooperative. Um, and we go to San Sebastian. We see different places. Uh, we go to the Basque parliament. We're actually the only group that does that but we do have a session with the Department of Coexistence and Human Rights, which used to be called the Department of Peace. And it gives, I think our the people who go on our trip, it gives them an idea of the depth at which the society is working on social transformation. That they created this department in the Basque parliament is quite extraordinary. I mean, it is an autonomous region of Spain, so they are allowed their own parliament. And uh, it's exemplary. I mean, if you read some of the things that these uh, former presidents or current presidents say and write, it's just inspiring. It's like some of our best writing about what we'd like the world to be. And the vision they have is so exemplary, I guess is the word. So so we will have a group that goes to these different places that week of September 10th to 16th, and it will be our 12th week-long seminar in um, Mondragon. And we also go to actually one of the Mondragon University campuses for a day. Um, there's an American professor there who gives us a kind of an overview, a lecture, and his experience being in Mondragon for 30 years. And um, so we eat at their cafeteria, which is like a gourmet restaurant. It's not, not, not like a normal cafeteria. Excellent food in the region, as probably many people know, they have lots of um, multi-star Michelin restaurants in the Basque region. They're noted for this. So uh, there's several five-star in the region, especially San Sebastian. Um, So there's some excellent restaurants there. Food is one of their things. They're, They're noted for.
0: I love, I love that and, and uh, I, I've been a, a foodie for some time now and uh, I like to tell folks eating wonderful food, farm to table food, so on is one of my favorite sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm struck just to pick up on this food thread for a brief moment, here in the United States, it's my opinion that one of the top 10 or 12 most important issues we have in front of us to take on and, and tackle and transform is food system related how we're doing food here in this country in particular and as i travel around to other parts of the world including in some of the european nations i am struck for instance i was in a relatively uh, uh rural part of austria a few years back for a work trip and we had rented a car and we're driving and stopped at the the gas station which course, like here in the U.S., a gas station has a bit of a food mart. Well, you walk in, and it's as if you're in this gourmet artisan—you know, all these fresh foods, produce, wonderful olives, olive oil, fresh baked breads. I mean, just fabulous foods, which is quite a contrast from most of what we see here in the United States when we're fueling a vehicle and stopping in the quickie mart or whatever it's called. The and uh, mart. I like that. You know so i'm just i'm 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 so thrilled to hear about the food aspect and uh and i'm curious i i know that one of the big arms of the mondragon system has to do with food and agriculture can you tell us a bit about what they're up to with with that particular focus
1: yes i think, you know they always had fewer far fewer um agricultural cooperatives because it's a hilly terrain and it's mostly had an industrial background, but they do have some um, agricultural cooperatives. In fact, our group went to one last year and will go again this year because we have at least probably one farmer coming who's very interested in that. We try to tailor the particular seminar to what our group of people going that year want to learn about. So if we have a couple of people who really want to learn about farms, then we'll go to an agricultural co-op. If we have nobody that wants to learn about that, we would go somewhere else. So I try to tailor it every year, ask for things that will uh, answer questions and and relate to what people are doing who are going on that particular trip. Uh, One thing that they do have is a large supermarket chain called Eroski. And they are all over Spain. Um, I think they took it over. I, I don't know the history of that particular complex, but, I do know that they were um, converting the Araski supermarkets in the Basque region, they all are converted now, to worker-owned. And then they started converting the ones in the other parts of Spain to worker-owned. So that is a huge supermarket. Apparently, I've been told, it's like Walmart, I've never been in a Walmart, but it's huge and it covers everything. I mean, they sell all kinds of fresh food, vegetables, fruit, grains, breads, they have a fair trade section, uh, they have books, they have household goods, TVs, appliances, just everything like that. And um, they have a smaller, They have smaller ones in some communities, like in Mondragon, there's a great big supermarket on the outskirts of the town, which we stop in at the end of our first day so people can see it and shop in it. And then there's a smaller one right around the corner from our hotel, you can run over and get it bunch of grapes or orange juice, but lots of fresh food, really, really extraordinary. Uh, sounds but wonderful. I agree with you that the whole, the fast food mentality is just not there like it is here. I've not actually never been into those quickie marts.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds absolutely wonderful. Um, and I wanna ask, uh, it, it sounds like from what you've told me in in our previous conversations you have some very interesting folks who join you for this annual immersive uh experience and i'm curious tell us a bit about the folks who often join and also how how many spots are available overall because i hope uh some of our friends from the why on earth community audience and network will be able to join and i know it's probably spaces limited right
1: yeah uh, i are you hearing any noises in the background from my side? I'm not. Great. Okay. Because there's a lawnmower going. Um, okay. So would you repeat the question? I got distracted by the guards. No
0: problem. And I love this because it's a, an example of how our podcasts are done in real time with real people and we they don't are. do much post-production. So uh, um, yeah, the question basically is, uh, Georgia, Um, How many spots are available for the total? Because I imagine space is limited. And tell us a bit about the the folks who tend to come uh, and join you for these experiences.
1: To me, the ideal number is around between 12 and 15. We can take more, but that is the number I feel works the best. Uh, We have to have at least 10 that's required to do the the, uh, seminar. But I have found over the years that it's better not to go over 15. We had 25 one year and it was like a zoo. So I wouldn't want to do that again. But we do have spaces right now. And um, I expect we'll fill. We always do. We've never had to cancel it. So we've got time still too. And I think there was something else you asked me about it. Sorry, these are really distracted.
0: Oh, no, no, no worries. Um, yeah, and so yeah, hope folks, if you want to join, I'm I'm very much hoping to be there, and if if you want to be a part of this experience, I would encourage you to get in touch with Georgia sooner than later to make sure you've got a spot. And uh, yeah, the second question, Georgia, is just to share a bit with our audience about some of the folks who tend to join you for this right. experience. Because you mentioned to me um, uh, recently that you often have professors and and folks who are really engaged in these uh, topics and looking at cultural and, and social transformational change.
1: Yes, we often affect every trip we've taken. We've had professors who want to teach the model and do. And uh, and then we have people from kind of all walks of life who are interested in this model, especially people who are politically oriented and, and don't see any hope in the future of capitalism. And they want to say, okay, what are some alternatives that, that work? And the thing about going to Mondragon is you see a hybrid system that's what i've always called it and yet it's something else uh cooperativism uh, that's such a word it's um you know it has elements of capitalism it has elements of socialism it has its own cooperativism uh but i wouldn't categorize it and i don't think they do either they never use those terms so they don't um but it it's appeals to people who are looking for real economic alternatives to the neoliberal capital uh, capitalism that has been so destructive in our societies. And this is an alternative and it's a model that works and works really, really well. The thing is it requires a certain type of understanding and mentality. And I think one of the most important things that it requires is for a person to have a a sense of enough. Uh, you can't be the kind of person that wants more and more and more and that has to prove yourself worth by your gadgets and your your uh, possessions because that isn't the kind of person who thrives in, in a cooperative community. So it takes a different mentality than this kind of neoliberal mentality that has been part of our culture for many decades, if not for the, from the beginning so it takes a different mindset. And what they always tell us when we go for our seminar is that it, you have to be mature to be in a cooperative. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that, I think they mean that in order to be a decision maker, because they are democratically run, but there is a point at which they, they work on consensus, but that doesn't mean 100% agreement. It means they would like 80%, But if they have to make a decision in a certain amount of time, they will go with a simple majority. It's not what they want, and they will try to actually always do better than that, but they would never require 100% buy-in, which is practical. And I think a lot of the cooperatives in the U.S. that began with that idea that we will be consensus-driven, we'll always be 100% in agreement, what that did, and they learned, the ones that survived, learned pretty quickly that what that does is gives one person the uh, the opportunity to sabotage the whole thing.
2: Yep. So if you're really
1: serious about the business, you cannot be consensus uh, 100%. Yep. You're, you're sabotaging your own organization. And and of course, Wondrigan understands that. Dynamic. Yeah, I've heard
0: that referred to as the tyranny of the minority.
1: Right. Uh, it is the tyranny of the minority. And I think many people who are focused on democracy in the US confuse 100% agreement with a democratic process. Um, Democratic process means people have different opinions, different ideas they bring to the fore, and share. And the majority will win out at, at a given time. But through the discussion, they understand why. And I think the mature part in order to step back and say okay my vision didn't pass muster this time so that's okay it will probably another time that's a sense of maturity and and not being ego driven yeah you've got the right answer and no one else does
0: right <laughs> so beautiful and, and really uh, it offers us so much to internalize and consider and potentially even adopt um, into our own lives and organizations and and speaking of that I'm really excited to share a project we're working on currently which is another book um, focused on regenerative finance social enterprise stewardship philanthropy and ecocene economics and for this book um, we're inviting a number of thought leaders authors etc to share essays and articles uh, to have a diverse collection of voices and input on how we can evolve our structures and systems toward a saner happier more ecologically balanced regeneratively and stewardship oriented way of doing business with each other and so i'm, I'm so thrilled to share georgia that it's uh, very 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 likely you'll be sharing an essay with us in this in yes. this book project um, with taking some of the particular insights and inspiration from the Mondragon cooperatives
1: indeed i look forward to doing that and i'm happy to be part of it thank you for asking
0: yeah it's it's really my pleasure I'm very very excited about this project and uh speaking of books I mentioned um uh that I studied in grad school the Monergon cooperatives did an in-depth dive for a, a sustainable economic development course I was taking and had a professor from who did a lot of work through the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund and I'm not sure he was quite buying it that's okay um, but one of the books I really enjoyed is called We Build the Road as We Travel by Roy Morrison, and this is a bit dated now, but I recall um, some financial figures that just stuck in my head that I'll ask you about in a, in a moment, Georgia, but uh, I want to be sure to also mention uh, some wonderful reads by an author, Mark Kerlansky, including one called The Basque History of the World, yes. um, and he, he, he's also written one called Salt, and one called cod um, and if you're c- curious about european history but also how uh in in pre-columbus times uh european fisher peoples were already interacting with native north american peoples along the atlantic coast including the bass peoples very likely um, these books are wonderful and, and salt and cod uh, go together salted cod was actually one of the early forms of transportable protein that enabled opening up of uh, overland and seafaring uh, trading to, to, to really move toward the Far East, toward Asia and then globally. Um, so a lot of really interesting world history rooted right in the in the Basque region. And I guess I gotta give a shout out to my new novel Viriditas and my book, Why on Earth? Because Mondragon is actually mentioned in both of these, um, which I'm happy about and in Why on Earth. Um, there's a non-fiction discussion of more regenerative and sustainable economic systems and in 3 Toss in the course of the story there's some discussion there as well um, but yeah facts and figures I'm you know what I recall is that uh, with the data we had in the mid to late 1990s the cooperatives were doing something around five billion dollars a year U.S. equivalent in annual revenue in their financial arm they essentially have their own banking and finance arm that I'd love to ask you about as well I, I guess they were managing somewhere in the vicinity of $6 billion U.S. equivalent in assets around that time. And I assume that's changed a bit. I don't know if you have those figures off the top of I your head. I don't
1: have the latest. The last I did see was $24 billion. Yeah. Um, I know Is it's
0: that, own. That's revenue or
1: assets are management? Yeah, I'm not good on this stuff. I haven't really paid attention. I should have looked this up before we spoke today, but I didn't. Um, no problem. I don't know off the top of my head what it is, um, but they do have their own banking system, which has made a huge difference. And it's the reason why the um, cooperative movement there has grown like it has. It They really helped it grow. And I think Father evers Avieta had that vision that we have to have a bank if this is going to be a viable alternative. And he actually forged the names of two other people because they didn't, see any reason to have a bank who are part of the cooperatives at the time. Oh, boy, he just forged their names, took the papers to the government and uh, established the bank. And you know the others who didn't want to sign said, well we don't know anything about banking. We've never worked in a bank and he said, well you'll learn. And uh, they did. So today their bank has about 400 branches all, located all over Spain. They're not just in the Basque region. It's Laboral Cucha is the name of the bank and um yeah so they they've got their tentacles in all different parts of a, an economy which is why they've thrived i think one of the reasons the culture yeah. of course the culture is what i'm more interested in in a way i'm not a finance person but i really am interested in how the culture supports this kind of an economic model and it does and you know our seminar over years over the years has brought in more of those parts of the culture that show why this worked there and why it continues to thrive. And last year we had a meeting with the mayor of Mondragon, uh, a woman in her, I think maybe early to mid forties. And she was elected the mayor when she was 35. She's gonna run for her third term this year. And um, the representative of Mondragon said she'll win again a lovely person uh, who speaks fluent English and had a session with us in the Parliament building in Mondragon, and I'm going to request it again this year.
0: Oh, fabulous. And I'm I'm really hoping we'll get a chance to do some amazing uh, additional podcast interviews when we're over there. And yeah, with the bank um, revenue figures and whatever else we can provide, I'll I'll see if we can add that into the show notes. And yeah, I mean, 24 billion a year plus or minus. Is substantial, whether it's revenue or assets under management, it's it's significant. And I remember hearing that uh, they even had a manufacturing facility here in the United States, or maybe are still operating it. I don't know if they
1: they do. Well, they operating. have um, you know different ones, and one of the ones that I know about is the they make Orbea bicycles, which are racing bikes, and okay. they're so light I could pick it up with one hand. A friend of mine has one, and it's just unbelievable how light it is. So racers use them a lot and they have a manufacturing plant in alabama actually
0: Mm, mm, mm. yeah yeah fabulous you know and speaking of the culture and the economy we uh recently concluded a four-part regeneration renaissance series and and split that into ecology culture and economy and it seems to me all three are Uh, So important for the challenges and opportunities we're all sharing here on planet Earth currently and it seems to me that Mondragon has done such an exemplary job with all three of those. Um, And I'm curious if you know of any other um, ecological regenerative work they've done in the region there, in addition to the agricultural work, is that something that you've noticed traveling around that region?
1: You mean environmentally um, yeah. sustainable? You know, it's not something at first that they were so focused on, they are now. Yeah. But uh, even when I first went there in 2008, it just looked like everything was so well cared for, so well managed, nothing excessive. Uh, they, they don't have this overuse of things that, that we have, I guess. Uh, so there's always been a certain sense in the society of uh, of enough again so there isn't this um how can i put it they live sustainably that's mm-hmm. they don't have to try to live sustainably it's like they, yeah. they already do and i think some of the things that they're focused on now is hitting certain goals you know which i mentioned in the essay i did write the goals that they're the government the vast government is attempting to reach by 2030 2050 and they are on track to do that, and they're part of the Paris Accords. They they go to the COP meetings. Their um, their parliament is very engaged in meeting sustainability mark markers by at least by twenty thirty. So they're on the road to this. So they weren't ten years ago, but they are now. That's and, and and they move quickly. As I mentioned in my um, in the article that I wrote is. When they decide to do something, it's not a huge thing that they spend, you know, a year writing proposals about or doing research studies about. They say, okay, uh, let's have a meeting, and then we do it. And one of the examples of that was when COVID broke out. The Spanish government realized they were really unprepared. They didn't have masks for the healthcare workers, and they needed to get them fast. So they contacted Mondragon. And they contacted two Mondragon cooperatives. Um, one that makes medical supplies and they asked them if they could do it quickly within a week they had some of them out already within a month they had i think 10 million masks (laughs) created so this is the way they work they work quickly they work efficiently and uh if they haven't done something two years ago they could have it going you know now they're they're very efficient and that's something that um You know, and I see how difficult it is to get environmental laws passed here, even in California. There have to be these studies and then there's more studies and then then there's meetings and they don't do that there. I mean, they may have the meetings and the studies, but it's quick. It's not a year or a two year or then another review. I mean, we have so many stumbling blocks. They don't work that way. They work on getting things done. And it's... Inspiring. Sometimes working here politically is so frustrating.
0: Um, Yeah.
1: Because you're working against corporations that are fighting you on every sustainability measure you want to put through, and there they don't have that. It's it's just different.
0: It's so inspiring. I just wrote joy and efficiency. It's uh, what a way to be, huh? What What a a way to
1: be. As you can see, I'm very much uh, an aficionado of Mondragon and. I remember the first couple of years I went. People said, "Well, after you've got a few years, you know, the romance will wear off." Well, you know what? It hasn't, and it's been 15 years. So, because I learn new things every time I go, and they do new things every time. There's something new every time we go.
0: That is uh, quite a quite a testament. That's so beautiful. Let me, uh, Georgia, remind our audience: this is the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry. Today, we're visiting with Georgia Kelly, the executive director of the Praxis Peace Institute, which hosts an annual week-long immersive experience with the Mondragon cooperatives in the Basque region of Spain. And uh, if you're just joining, you can join this year's experience, which is in September, September 10 to 16, 2023. We still have some spots available. I'm saying we because I'm assuming I'm going to (laughs) go.
1: I hope you are.
0: Yeah, I hope so too, Georgia. And you can find more information and connect with Georgia at praxispeace.org. That's P R A X I S peace.org. Also, she has a YouTube channel for the Praxis Peace Institute. The handle is at PPI 536. We'll include these links in the show notes, of course. And I want to be sure to mention and thank our sponsors and supporters who make our why on earth community podcast possible this includes chelsea green publishing and uh, you can go to whyonearth.org partners supporters to find special deals with many of our partners and supporters and with chelsea green they're offering a 35 percent discount on their books audiobooks etc um, so you can click through from the whyonearth.org website to take advantage of that uh, Purium Organic Superfoods, love these, use them every day. They're great. Um, we've had an episode with David Sandoval, the founder and CEO of Purium. Of course, Earth Hero, sustainable home supplies and more, much, much more pet supplies, home supplies, uh, check them out. Um, Waylay Waters and Soil Works. want to make sure we uh, have a moment to share about our regeneratively and biodynamically grown hemp-infused aromatherapy soaking salts this is a little social enterprise we stood up incubated within the wine earth community and the proceeds uh go to support our nonprofit, the wine earth community and we have many different aromatherapy blends and and similarly we've got soil works this is a for the garden for the house plants for the yard this is a beautiful biodynamic blend of uh soil amendments for your uh enjoyment with the plants and the critters and the birds and bees and pollinators and finally want to be sure to thank all of our ambassadors and everybody who's engaged with our monthly giving program and if you haven't yet uh and you'd like to set up a a monthly donation at any level uh, you can click on the donate button at wyonearth.org if you give at 33 dollars or greater um we'll send you as a thank you a jar of the waylay water soaking salts um each month or possibly three or five jars depending on your giving level um so it's another uh set of examples of some of the regenerative and sustainability oriented uh economic systems that we're helping to plant and sprout and grow in water uh here on this side of the atlantic ocean And yeah, Georgia, I wanted to share a quote from Father um, Arizmendi, as as I guess you say for short. Um, He's quoted and says, cooperation is the authentic integration of people in the economic and social process that shapes a new social order. The cooperators must make this objective extend to all those that hunger and thirst for justice in the working world. And I, you had mentioned earlier that um, there's this sense of uh, social justice and working for social justice at the heart of the Mondragon cooperatives. And I know universal nature is one of the principles that, that is articulated. And I was hoping you could share with us a bit about what you know this community to be doing when it comes to peace, justice, democracy, human dignity, et cetera.
1: Well, that's where I've kind of gone um, a little bit outside the cooperatives into the culture, because I think the Basque Parliament ha- has does a lot of that work and the NGOs do as well. When we first went to Mondragon uh, the first few years, they used to take us to uh, a peace center that was located on the grounds of a monastery in uh, Ar- Aran Sasu, which is not far from Mondragon. And that Peace Center now is located somewhere else. But we always went there. And I thought, well, what is the connection between the Peace Center and and that? And I never quite totally knew what it was, but they used to take us there. And then when the uh, director was no longer head of it because he had been made the um, head of the Peace Department in the parliament, uh, we didn't go there anymore. And I said, well, let's go meet him in the parliament. So they got permission for our group to go the parliament and have a session with him. He's written some books on um, conflict resolution and how to deal with conflict. His his name is Yonan Fernandez, an incredible peacemaker. He is really responsible for the ETA or ETA, which was the Basque terrorist organization. It no longer exists. And he was one of the people who spearheaded the talks. Uh, They were really truth and reconciliation processes with the perpetrators and victims of ETA violence. And they that group actually dissolved itself after, I think, eight years of these talks and um, bringing in other peacemakers. That's a longer story, but um, it shows the, uh, the intent. When he accomplished that, the bash parliament decided, okay, we need a department of peace and he will be the head of it. So it's seeing that opportunity. Again, it's the efficiency with the vision. They see what this man's accomplished. They see, okay, this is the time to create a department of peace. He will be head of it. And these are the things that he can figure out that we'll work on. So now they work with prisoners. They work you know, in the society differently. Um, they've reoriented their focus because they don't have a terrorist organization anymore. That was handled. So these kinds of... Um, projects and the way they work and listening to all of the stakeholders, they don't just listen to the people with the power, they listen to everybody. And in that process, everybody hears everyone else. And it it works extraordinarily well. And again, it takes maturity, it takes um, the understanding that you don't have all the answers, and that you're willing to hear other people's experiences. It's a discipline. I don't think it comes to any of us naturally, but they are ahead of us in this work by far as a society. Yeah, so
0: much of what you describe with respect to the culture reminds me of several of the indigenous communities that I'm connected to including the Mohawk uh, where I have some of my own ethnic heritage and my, my friends, my relatives in the Mohawk nation also have a very inclusive approach to governance and actually the framers and founders of the democracy here the republic of the united states took some Mm -hmm. um, inspirational direction from the mohawk and the other tribes in the iroquois confederacy and uh, i'm curious is do you have a sense that uh, the basque people have a, a type of indigeneity uh, it's almost a deeper connection with that region, with each other culturally than perhaps we, we find in some of the other Western uh, countries?
1: Probably, I mean, that's certainly the assumption. And, um, you know, they were cut off from different parts of Europe for a long, long time. And their language is related to no other language on the planet. Mm-hmm. So they're very unique. And part of what was the isolation, I think, um, but the fact that their language is so unique is it, very interesting. I mean, linguists have not been able to connect it to any other known language. Um, maybe at some point they will, but they haven't so far. I always joke with them that it's probably um, came from Atlantis
0: uh.
1: <laughs> and some of them made it to shore and they kept the language alive. But yeah. you know, it, it isn't Indo-European like all the languages that surround it yeah. or or any other. So it's a unique community in probably many ways that I don't understand, but but I'm still studying it because I'm fascinated by it.
0: Well, Georgia, I, I am as well and, and so grateful for this opportunity to learn from you today and really looking forward to hopefully joining you on this adventure in September. Um, and, and before we sign off from our podcast discussion, of course in a few minutes we'll do our behind the scenes chat which is available to our ambassador network and if uh, anyone in our audience would like to become an ambassador and you haven't yet you can just find the page called become an ambassador on the wineearth.org website and uh, you'll get walked through the simple steps to do so um so before we have our behind the scenes chat georgia and i guess i'll probably end up asking you a little bit about some food items uh, when we do that um, among other things I just wanted to open the floor to you in case there's anything else you'd like to say or share with our audience uh, before we sign off. And thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us today.
1: Well, thank you for having me on, Erin. I've really enjoyed the discussion with you. And I think one thing I wanna tell people is we do have a whole page on Mondragon on the Praxis Peace website. And um, that page tells all about the program that we do at the Mondragon Cooperative, so people can find out a lot about it. And they can also email me, Georgia at praxispeace.org, and we can set up a time to talk if they would like to do that uh, to give you more information about the actual program. So I wanted to just put that out there. And then to go to our YouTube channel, because we do have several programs that are free and uh, people can watch that are really interesting. I interview a lot of people like Aaron does. So uh, you can go see some of those programs on our
0: site. That's so wonderful. And it reminds me as we uh, were preparing for our interview today, you noticed the book by Bernard Lieter over my shoulder here on the shelf, The Future of Money, which is uh, such an important piece of work for both of us. And both of us, had the opportunity to get to know Bernard reasonably well uh, before his passing a couple years ago. And of course, you got to know him really well. And maybe as a a beautiful little honoring and homage uh, to Bernard and his incredible work around regenerative finance and uh, economics, you could share with us just a wee bit about your beautiful friendship with Bernard.
1: Well, Bernard was actually a neighbor of mine um, when I lived in Mill Valley. He lived just behind me on the hill, and um, sometimes we would just talk from our backyards. But uh, we we got together probably at least three times a week, either for lunch or coffee or tea, uh, where we would talk about the books he was reading to prepare for writing that book, The Future of Money. So I started reading all the same books so we could talk about them. And it was a fascinating learning experience for me. I think Bernard was like a mentor. I learned so much in that process. And one of the books that he read, because he was very into the the yin side of currency. And one of the books he read was um, uh, The Creation of the Patriarchy by Gerda Lerner, which is a profound book and certainly changed the way I see a lot of things. Brilliant woman. She passed a few years ago, also in her 90s. But uh, an extraordinary book, The Creation of Patriarchy. Um, I learned a lot from it. So did he. Incorporated ideas from it in his book. And we read a lot of the same books together and had these discussions. So it it was a rich time of learning in my life.
0: Wonderful. Can you tell us again the author of Creation of the Patriarchy?
1: Yes, it's Gerda Lerner, L-E-R-N-E-R.
0: Okay, that's absolutely wonderful, and I I like to share with folks, for anybody who's interested in regenerative finance, stewardship economics, even uh, interested in what cryptocurrencies and digital currencies can do for the betterment of our world, uh, I recommend humbly that Bernard Lieter's book, The Future of Money, is must reading. Um and uh what a what a joy to visit today Georgia and I'm so um happy not only that we could record this interview but also that we're connected and collaborating on some other fronts now as well and uh, once again thanks so much for for joining us today. Thank you. Talk to you later. Bye.
2: The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors you can get discounts on their products and services using the code YONEarth. all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support and Thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.